Hear the word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn to that passage, you know it's in Colossians in chapter 1. I only want to take up really verse 10 and not all of it, but at least some of it this morning. This is really the guts of Paul's prayer for this church in Colossae has two parts to it, as we'll see. There is this part of thanks, which is verses 3 through 8, which we took up a few weeks ago. And then we began a couple of weeks ago talking through the petition part of this prayer, which begins in verse 9. The prayer itself is very instructive for us. Even though it's a prayer, it's also instructive for us. The scripture say that all scripture is God-breathed. And so even though it comes from the heart of Paul, we know it also comes from the heart of God. He's breathing it forth out of the apostle. That's what makes scripture different than everything else that we read and everything else that we hear. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's truth. It cannot err. It's breathed out from God. Even though it comes through men through, it is God breathed. So it's profitable, as the scripture tells us, for teaching. All of it, even the prayers. It's profitable for correction. Our prayers can be corrected by this prayer for reproof. Uh, For training in righteousness. To enable us to live righteously. So that... Each believer uh, can be equipped for every good work, everything that God calls us to. So scripture is given to us, uh, so it teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. So as we read this prayer, we know it's instructive to us. Uh, It teaches us, in one sense, how to pray. Uh, It's fascinating that Paul doesn't know these people. He hadn't been... As he says to this church in Colossae, he had met them, he had heard about them, he knew some things about them as believers, and thus, yet still, he prays for them. And so we can pray, we can pray even for those we don't know, other believers throughout the world, we can pray. And, and you may ask, uh, how do you pray for people you don't know? Well, you could pray this. It's God-breathed. It comes from God, in fact... When I pray through our Facebook, which is our little pictorial directory thing, uh, or I pray through lists that I have of people who come to our church, I don't know everybody. I don't know every particular need. And so I pray the prayers of Scripture for you, for over every family and those names and all of that kind of thing. Since I'm not on TV, I don't have a big stack of requests that I have to put my hands on. Um, That's all I'll say about that. But uh, I do have names of people and some whom I know particularly, so I can pray particular things, specific things. But for everybody I walk through, I pray through, I just pick up. You could do this too, by the way. You have a uh, a little Facebook there, a little list of names of people in the church. You may say, what do I pray? We'll pick up a page and begin to pray this. Give thanks to God for them. 
and for the faith that they have, the love they have shown to all the saints, to, to pray that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so, they may, so that they may live worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened uh, according to his glorious might by his mighty power for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks. So, so you can pray that. And as you do, you can trust that God is at work. In fact, it's interesting in, in Colossians in chapter 4 concerning Epaphras, this one who seems to, from Paul, to have brought the word of God, the gospel to this city Colossae, to the people there. Verse 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. See, there's something about praying that we don't get. It's hard for us to believe. We think that when we're helping you physically, struggling in that way, we're really helping you. And we are. We believe that when, we, when we're talking to you about difficult things and, and we're counseling and we're sharing together about life, that we're really helping because it's face-to-face right here. We're able to do it, see it, feel it, all of that. But here's Epaphras, who isn't with them at the time, struggling. The, the word for struggle in Greek is the word agonizo from which we get our word agonize. You get this sense of, of real work on his behalf. He believes, Epaphras does, as he's praying for them, that they're being helped. In some ways, just as much as if he were there teaching them, just as much as if he were there hands-on with them. So he's, he's praying, struggling for them. So, so Paul, as he's praying this prayer for them, believes... That something is happening. Believes that God will be at work in the lives of these people. Really filling them with the knowledge of his will. And, and all the means that that might take. And he's, and, he's, and he's really giving them all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Even as he prays for them. That God will do that work. And, and we need to believe that too. Because it's true. Even though it's hard for us to believe. Because again, it, we don't see it. We're not right there. To trust God. And so pray this for your children. Pray this for your spouse. Pray this for each other. Pray this for the Christians around the world as you think of Christians living in other places, some places more difficult to live than than we. But it's, so it's instructive. It, it helps us to know how to pray. But not only that, it, it, it tells us what's important to God. There's a number of ways we can learn, of course, from Scripture what's important to God. We can read the teaching passages, the commands of Scripture. These, we know these things are important to God. When, when God says that we're to love each other, to be compassionate towards each other, we know those things are important to Him. When He says that we're to trust and believe, we know those are important to Him. But, but also, when we read through the prayers of Scripture, we get a sense of what God is breathing forth out of His prayers that which is important. My children, for instance, can know what I think is important for their lives because of all the things that I've said to them and taught them. They can say, oh yeah, dad said this or dad said that. This, this we know is important to him. There have been times when I've either sat them down or most recently because of our distance written to them and said, this is what I'm praying for you. They also then know what's important, at least to me, about them and their lives by what I pray for them. When we worked our way through John chapter 17, which was Jesus' high priestly prayer, we learned a great deal about the heart of God for us. A great deal about what was important in our lives from God's perspective, because he was the very son of God, Jesus himself, praying these things oh God he said do this do that for them in them we know those things must really really be important and throughout the course of that prayer we realized that knowing God was very important is very important we must be all about that knowing him 
that our security as believers to be kept very important. Our unity, very important to God. All those things we learned from Jesus' prayer. He wasn't teaching us directly, but we saw his heart that this is important. We see what's important as we read through this prayer. We realize being a thankful people is important. Understanding the grace of God. Understanding his rescue of us. Understanding how hopeless and helpless we were so that we really get it. We really see that his salvation, this salvation, is really a gift from beginning to end. That the faith that we have is evidence of his work in us. That the love we have for each other is evidence of that. The hope that we have in him is his great gift to us so we can give thanks. And we realize that his heart for us is that we live a life that's worthy of the Lord. That expression gives me great pause to think that I'm to live in a way that shows him to be great, shows him to be who he is, that when I say Jesus is Lord, then now I walk out, not to show that I'm worthy of him, but to show how worthy he is of my devotion and my allegiance and and my love and my obedience and my trust. So what's important to God, what's important to Paul here, is that they walk in a manner to live in such a way, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And so to get there, he prays, as we noticed a couple of weeks ago, that we need to be filled, that is controlled by, filled, characterized by, filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we need to be about knowing what pleases God, knowing what his will is, to understand his precepts, to understand his commands, to be discerning about what is pleasing to him. And and this, of course, is, is spiritual. That is, it comes from God, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes, it's spiritual, and it's wisdom and understanding, wisdom and understanding that's to be applied. We're to please him in every way. In fact, as the scripture lays this out for us, for instance, in First Thessalonians, in chapter 4, and verse 1, uh, we read this. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. The apostle writes to them and says, you know, here's, here's what's important for you, that you, you please God. And then in verse 7, well, let me read all of this passage. Two, through, verse 2, he says, For you know uh, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He says, you want to be filled with the knowledge of his will. What's important to God is that you be sanctified. Now, the word sanctified has, has a, a number of different nuances. It, it means to be set apart, but it, but it means to be set apart to be holy. It comes from the, the word to be holy. So you'll be set apart, so you can live holy unto the Lord. Um, the will of God, your sanctification. And then he begins to, to, to mention some very specific things, certainly true for all Christians, but apropos for those in Thessalonica, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Then verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He desires that we live holy lives. And so, yes, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own works. That's certain. But yet he saves us so that in this transformation of our lives that we can live holy before him. The classic passage there, of course, is Ephesians and chapter 2. It begins by 
noting this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's just true. Those of us who are believers have come to grips with this, come to grips with who we are, were. We know this about ourselves. And though stated in dramatic language and sometimes hard to put our nice little American uh, good people uh, uh, thoughts into this, we, we realize this to be true as we've rebelled against God. And then again, verse 4, and I think we noted this last Sunday, noted for us, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Grace, this free gift of God. By grace, you've been saved and raised uh, us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So clear that our salvation, our being declared righteous by God, isn't because he looked at us and said, you're really righteous, I see it. It's not because of that. It's because he looked at Christ and said, he is righteous. And he put us in Christ, and thus he sees us in Christ, and thus declares us righteous, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of Christ. It's a gift. We've been utterly and completely rescued by him. We were dead, unresponsive, unwilling, unable because of our sin. It, 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 it told us to say no to Christ. God overcame all of that that we might be saved. But then notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That's really clear, isn't it? We're his workmanship because he's done this work in us. Now he created us originally, but now he's given us new life, this recreation, if you will. We're his workmanship. He's working in us. Created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, that he desires for us in Christ to be holy, to, to be holy and blameless before him, to do that which is good. We haven't been saved so we can continue to live impurely, but we've been saved and we could do that which is good. Now this doing of good doesn't save, doesn't pay back, doesn't show that God made a good choice in choosing us to be his, but it's simply reasonable. It's simply what goes with it, what goes with this new birth, this new life, this union with Christ. Something happened. That God did this work in us so that we died with Christ to the penalty of sin and its ultimate dominion and a power in our lives so that now we can live new. Newness of life is the expression in Romans in chapter 6. And so now when he says that we're to live worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, we're being told that we're to live lives completely devoted to Christ. See, that's the very point of, of Colossians. There was some difficulties there, as we know. We'll get to in chapter 2. I keep sort of prepping you for this. But in chapter 2, we get to the difficulties there. But it, it seems that, that, that Christ was being marginalized, that the message of the gospel that came from Epaphras uh, was said to be okay, but, but not sufficient. It was necessary. We could follow our mathematician's way of thinking. It was necessary, but not sufficient to really grow up in maturity. There's something else needed, some extra personal piety, some, some special days, some traditions, some philosophies of people bringing in different or at least in addition to this gospel. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That gospel was right because Christ is the one who is to have 
preeminence. No one else. And why is that so? It's because of who he is. Notice verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he's the very one who shows us who God is. He's, he's the one, because he's firstborn, means that, that he has control over all creation. And that because he is the creator. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And as Paul works his way through this letter, he speaks of that. For instance, in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our hope of being glorified. Our hope of spending eternity in glory. Our hope is that Christ is in us. No one else, nothing else. Our hope is in Christ in Christ alone. In chapter 2, in verses 2 and 3, speaks of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you want all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Then one must know Christ. Then in chapter 3, in verse 4, just this little expression, Paul says, Christ who is your life. He's your very life. And so depend on no one else. Be devoted to no one else. Allow your whole life to be defined by him, to be directed by him. Find your whole delight in who he is and how he defines your life and how he directs you. He's the one. He is preeminent. Be completely devoted to him. Jerry Bridges, who is quite gracious. He's one of the few men I know that you invite him to something and he gives you a gift. <laughs> so he gave me a book. He always gives me a book. Gave me a book. Uh, and uh, he happens to have written a chapter in this book. Um, it's, it's a book, actually, to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. And uh, Jerry was asked to write a chapter called The True Christian Life. Now, he's always asked to write about that and to write about holiness because everyone knows him. And everyone knows not only his heart, but his life, one who is a holy life. And though Jerry's getting older, I, I don't anticipate going to his funeral. Because if there's anyone like Enoch around, whom God may just simply take, I just think someday Jane will call and say, he's just not here. <laughs> but he writes this about holiness. And he's quoting a bit of Calvin as his, his task here. He says, holiness consists in conformity to Christ. Calvin writes, because the Father has reconciled us to himself in Christ, therefore, he commands us to be conformed to Christ as our pattern. Indeed, he continues, unless we are ardently, unless we ardently and prayerfully devote ourselves to Christ's righteousness, We do not only faithlessly revolt from our creator, but we also abjure him as our savior. Jerry goes on to explain that. He says, this is strong language. The word ardently conveys the idea of eager zealousness, or as we might say today, going all out or giving 100%. The word abjure means to renounce strongly, as in Peter's third denial of the Lord when he, began to, when, he, when he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Calvin leaves no room for a middle ground. Either we ardently pursue the example of Christ or else we strongly renounce him by our conduct and lifestyle. How different this standard is from the attitude of so many of today's Christians who are quite casual or half-hearted in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. But from Calvin's matter-of-fact writing style, it is clear that he regards a zealous, a zealous pursuit of holiness as the normal Christian life. Paul, his heart, as he prays, thus the heart of the Holy Spirit 
God being breathed out from him says that what is crucial for us is that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. That is, being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ was the one who was fully pleasing to him. When I laid out Psalm 24 as our call to worship, we've used it a number of times, we've never stopped really to ponder it as we give it, but it's quite ponderous. Psalm 24 begins by saying, Who shall ascend to God's holy hill? Who can stand in his presence? Well, as you read uh, those words, or if you were listening on other occasions when I've used this as, as a call to worship, the answer is, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully. And we go, I'm out. Right? But then the psalmist says, Wait, 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 there's somebody coming who can stand in the presence of the Lord. He's, he's the one. He's, he's, he's almighty. He's the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. And there's a sense, therefore, in which he means he's conquered sin and death. He's conquered all of that. Come in him. And then you can stand too because you'll be cleansed by him and in him and through him. And once that's true in us, then we're to be fully devoted to him. The way the apostle puts it in 2 Corinthians. And chapter 5 is, is this. He writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says there's, there's something that takes place when we get it, when we understand what Christ has done. And there's something so compelling about his voluntary, gracious sacrifice. There's something so compelling about what he has done for us, given our dire straits of being unable to do anything for ourselves of spiritual value that would commend us to God. He did it, you see. There's something so compelling about that that we're motivated. Something in us, we're compelled to leave aside our own lives and to now live for this one who has so loved us. Not to gain anything from him that he hasn't given because that would destroy everything. Because our love is based on what he has so freely given. And thus we follow him then with great joy. And this is to produce in us good works. We're to bear fruit. Paul prays this. And we'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does that mean? Well, it means at least this first thing that it means is... We're to bear fruits in every good work. In other words, the fruits are what is seen, what comes out, because we have a knowledge of God's will, because we're desiring then, knowing what pleases Him, because we have a knowledge of His will, and desiring to please Him, then the fruit, what will come out of us, is, is that which is good, is work, stuff that we do, work that is good, just like in the Ephesians 2.10 passage. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Preparing in a twofold way. Number one, that was his plan all along. That he would have for himself a people zealous for good works. And so, he's, he's working in us so that we would then do good works. And he's even prepared those works, those things for us, because he's the sovereign God, so that we could walk in them. The way Paul puts it, in Titus is like this in Titus in chapter 2 and verse 11 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from our lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That is, who are zealous to be like Jesus, who are ardently desiring Christ-likeness. Chapter 3, Titus, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to their rulers, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You get the sense that we're all just sitting on the edge of our chairs, ready to jump up and to do that which is good. There's this zealousness, there's this, this, this anticipation. Then verses 3 through 7, he goes through a similar kind of description of us, which we read in Ephesians chapter 2. And then he says in verse 8, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then verse 14, the last, second to the last, uh, third to the last sentence in this letter, he said, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All right? So, so good works, very, very uh, important to us. You remember what Jesus said. May your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, what is to cast the gaze of others from us to God is that which we do that is really good that is really beneficial that is really helpful that really shows them Christ see they look at us they see good works what are they to see us no Christ this Christ likeness we're to be that light I read uh, at our offering time this morning from First Timothy in chapter 6 verse 18 about the rich they're to do good to be rich in good works Aha. they're to do good to be rich in good works why have we been made rich we've been made rich spiritually and materially relatively speaking we've been made rich spiritually the deposit that God has given to us of the gospel the richness we have in it makes us as a community of believers quite responsible but also quite able through the gospel to do that which is good we have a great responsibility in this community God is guarded in our church the gospel in ways that are astounding and humbling that means we have great responsibility to do that which is good with it to spread it in every kind of way and materially he's saying the reason the rich are rich are so that they can do that which is good. We don't become rich to buy another boat. Ooh, I'm going to get in trouble. Another membership, another whatever. You fill in your blank so you can get in trouble with yourself. You've been made rich to do that which is good. Maybe getting a bow to help you do that, which is good for people. I don't know. That's your deal. But that's your standard. I have this. Now, how can I use this to do good so that people will see this and glorify God who is in heaven? That's what we're to do. I mentioned earlier the scripture equips us for every good work. As you're reading the scripture, why? Are you reading it? Well, to know God for sure. But if you know God through the reading of the scripture, then let me put this like this. Then you will be filled with the knowledge of his will according to in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruits in every good work. There you go. And so the scriptures to equip you for that very 
good work. If Hebrews chapter 10 tells us as a company of people that we are to spur one another on to good works. We're to encourage one another to do that which is good. First Peter chapter 2 speaks uh, to a suffering church saying that it's their good deeds that will cause their accusers to be silenced. Good works important for us. And what are these? Well, we'll come to it in, 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 in more fullness uh, when we get to chapter 3. I don't know when that'll be. So let me just <laughs> highlight these good works. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion. You see, we're not going to have a list necessarily of things to do. We're going to have a list of things which are inside of us because of Christ, which will cause us to do that which is good. One's list may be different than another's list of particular things, but it all stems from compassion, the very compassion of Christ. In fact, when he says put on these things, he's in a sense saying put on Christ, put on compassion. Compassion says I see a need and I'm compelled to move. It isn't just I see the need and I feel sorry. Compassion says I see the need and I'm compelled to move. The classic for me, and you've heard me use this a hundred times, is Jesus seeing a leper coming down the street. He sees a leper coming down the street. No one would be around that person. If they were around that person, they'd be screaming to stay away from that person, that everyone should stay away. And Jesus saw that, that, that person with leprosy, and the scripture says this, he had compassion and reached out and touched him. Nobody would do that. That's what compassion is. It can't keep its hands in its pockets. Compassion can't not touch. Compassion can't not do. Compassion can't not help. Jesus saw our misery in glory. Could not not come. That's what we're to be. Zealous for good works because the compassion of Christ is in us. We're to be kind desiring the best for the other. We're to be humble, seeking their interest above our own. We're to be meek in all of this so that they can receive from us. We're to be patient even when they don't receive us well. We're to bear with each other in difficulties and not give up on one another. We're to forgive even as the Lord has forgiven us because all of these things are bound together in this thing called love, which is desiring, honestly desiring, even put it this way, it's honestly delighting in the good of another. It's finding your pleasure in the happiness of others. It's finding your pleasure in the well-being of another. That is, that you're able to help them. That's what makes you happy. Or to be like that. Now, there's a great danger in this. I bet you didn't expect me to say that. There's a great danger in this. And the great danger has been put like this by some in our day. That we must be careful that we, do, that we, that we, that we must be careful not to leave the gospel and become simply moralists or simply do-gooders. And I mean do-gooders in the best sense of that word. People who do good. The great danger is to skip the gospel and get to the good works. And if we do that, then we're renouncing the gospel because what we're really saying is that God accepts me because I do these good things. And what's important only is to do these good things. And the answer is, and the point is no, that isn't the good thing. The good thing is to do these good works because of Christ, out of Christ, because of his transforming work in us out of devotion to him, to please him. There's a tension in scripture. The apostle Paul says that, that we've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. James puts it that, that, that faith that saves is a faith that works. But they weren't against each other at all. Paul was simply saying this is what 
Salvation is, this is how we come into it, by grace, not works, by faith, through faith. And James is saying, yes, of course, but remember that real, genuine faith shows itself as transformed by having come into relationship with Christ. It will do good. So faith that doesn't do good isn't really faith, but it must be connected. You see, if if all we're after is doing the right thing, we miss the other, we miss the gospel, then we'll become people who are either insecure because we have to keep doing good or arrogant because we look at our lives and say, look at all the good we've done. In my experience... People who have, and this is, this is not Bible, by the way. When I say in my experience, all right, this isn't Bible. So you just kind of lay this out and you go, oh, let me think about that. In my experience, the people most prone to moralism, oh, I shouldn't say it that way. In my experience, people who grow up in the church can have a tendency towards moralism and miss the gospel. Here's what I've observed. That we grow up in good families. We're disciplined well. We learn what's right and wrong. And so we pretty much don't do anything that bad. And the stuff we do do that's really bad or that's sort of bad, we know that, well, when we're older, everybody will laugh about this. Right? And you end up getting this sense of I can do it. And everybody reinforces you because they tell you what a good kid you are. And that's probably a good thing to say, so don't stop saying that to your kids. What a good kid you are. And they grew up thinking, well, I did this, I got this accolade, therefore I must be a pretty good kid. I hear the gospel, I know about sin, I know about the need for redemption, I know about all that, but it's just not registering to me because in my experience, I'm a pretty good person, really. And there needs to come a place And I don't know how this comes. Various lies, one's lies, whether it's by reading, whether it's by experience, whether it's by getting older, whether it's by watching others. All of it must come by way of the work of the Spirit who really convicts, who speaks to us of the majestic holiness of God so that a day comes when we shiver And then when we see the very depths of our depravity and see our need and then the gospel gets real. We see the perfection of Jesus and we thirst for him because we need that perfection to cover us. And and then we understand his death and we know we need that lest we would suffer hell. And and when we come to that, you see, then, then we realize, okay, it is grace, but then there's this compulsion to love him. And how do we express that? By being like him. But but not by leaving him and saying, okay, you stay there and watch. No, 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 please help me. I need you. I'll trust your word. Your spirit abide in me that I may. And at every turn when we see that which is good, we don't pat ourselves ourselves on the back and say, what a great kid I am. We say, that's Jesus. Wow. He really is at work in me. And then as these things happen, we don't seek that others say to us, oh, good job. We seek others to say to God, what a great work. And we begin to get it. That's why, you see, these Sundays for us seem to be so important. <sighs> seem to be, that's a bad way of putting it, are so important for us because this is the correction for us. When Jerry was here last week, as he says, every time that he's here, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And that is true. God has established 
a gathering of his community to where we preach the gospel to ourselves at least once a week. We need to hear this. We need to see this. The correction to moralism, thinking that we can really obey so that God will accept us, the correction to that is the gospel. It's hearing it. It's seeing it. It's tasting it. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body given for you. Same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As often the apostle says, we eat of this bread, drink of this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming he is holy. We're proclaiming we are not. We're proclaiming that Jesus has come as the very expression of the grace of God to walk in holiness as our representative so that we can say that every time we disobeyed, he obeyed. Every time we rebelled in thought, word, action, he submitted to his Father. He lived worthy of God. And then as our substitute, he took our sin. If he doesn't, if he hadn't, we would be lost, condemned. But because he has, now we are saved. We have eternal life. We're reconciled to God. That's what we proclaim. Thus we know that anything good that we do isn't to be accepted because we already have been And there's no way we could do that which Christ has done. The good that we do comes from his continual work in us. So when we see the good, we say, thank you. And when others see the good, we say, it's because of Christ. Trust him. Don't grow up and be like me. Watch him. Devote to him. Love him. Trust him. Receive from him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray now for me, for us, that you would show us Christ Jesus meet with us so that we would know the great love that you have for us so that we would be compelled to love you, that our love would be expressed in trust, that our love would be expressed in desire to be like Christ. And that you would work in us that we might do that which is good. Set apart this bread and juice in such a way that Jesus will meet with you. Increase our faith. Correct any hint at moralism to think that we can do that which is good to be accepted. Jesus, convince us of your grace. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope. Without hope. No hope at all. Except in his sovereign mercy. Those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. Those who desire to live a life worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. That's true for you. Let me ask you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left. These two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And what will you think? I always tell you what to think. What will be in your mind about that? amazing grace will it be a prayer that says God fill me with the knowledge of your will and of spiritual wisdom and understanding so that I may 
walk worthy of you, fully pleasing, bearing fruit, that might be a bit much. It might simply be, thank you. Help me. Please come. Satisfied.
Pray with me, Father in heaven, enable us to trust, to trust in you, Lord Jesus. Reveal to us the depths of our depravity and the heights of your grace. That we may never be tempted towards self-righteousness and arrogance, self-dependence and smugness. Captivate us, God, by your great love for us. Enable us to do good to others. Father, I pray for the ministry of our church, for the Five Loaves House, for the Family Promise Network, for our Sunday Schools Blast, our youth group, covenant groups, friendships. Pray for us in our offices, our neighborhoods, in our families, our sports teams, our garden clubs, our cooking clubs, our classrooms, our service organizations. Father, may we see all of these opportunities. May we see all of these as opportunities to do good to others in the name of Christ. And Father, when we do, I pray that people would see not us, but Christ. Fill us, therefore, with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of you, God, fully pleasing to Christ, bearing fruits in every good work. Pray that for those who are, are hurting, Father, that they may be motivated to do good even in the midst of their struggle, and that we may bless them by helping them in the midst of their struggle. Father Virginia, tell God, thanks for the great report. I pray for her as she continues to heal. Be with Albert as he blesses his wife. For Mim McGrogan as she continues to, to mend from her surgery. Father, I pray for strength for her and help and encouragement. For Gordon Williams and the loss of his mom, that you would grant him grace as he grieves. Father, thanks that the Pratts made it home safely last night with Tigray from Ethiopia. Bless them now in these days. Father, I pray for all those suffering in the midst of this recession and all the ramifications that it has even beyond the financial realm for marriages, for families. Meet every need, I pray. For various missionaries from us, for birthright, Father, may they continue to do that which is good of saving babies and helping young moms. For Jeff and Rebecca Burgess, Father, with crusade, I pray for them that you would grant them 
grace to show the gospel on this campus. Father, thank you. For you have indeed qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. For you've delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. May we never grow tired of that. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to the benediction this morning is to sing together the great praise, the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and 